all that said, let's open our Bibles and we say word. We are in Acts chapter 13. I want to strongly encourage you to bring a Bible, uh, maybe a tablet or phone, have a pen or a pencil or a stylus uh, to take notes. I'm going to highlight some things as we go through the text. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13, but for context, I'm going to kind of catch us up to where we were last week. We have been tracing the flow of the gospel, Acts 1-8 serving really as our overview, the entire book of Acts, that the gospel spreads from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of earth. Well, we're getting now to the outermost parts of earth. We have seen the gospel spread in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, and now we are seeing the gospel go global. The gospel was always intended to be a global movement. Who is going to carry the gospel globally, family? Well, yes. Okay, so we are. So present day uh, environment, yes, our contemporary culture, we are the missionaries. Somebody tell me, what is a missionary? What does a missionary do? Do we know? That's a good question. What is a missionary? A missionary is one who takes the gospel to where the gospel isn't. And so we're going to see missionaries born today into the missionary movement. And really, this becomes the framework of all missionary activity around the world. In chapter 11, end of chapter 11, we saw last week Agabus deliver a prophecy at the church at Antioch that there was going to be a famine in the then-known world. And so the church at Antioch decided to become generous, not decide to become generous, but act in the spirit and heart of generosity. And they put together a gift for their sending mother church in Jerusalem. And so they gathered up some resources. And as we saw last week, the church is, is to be generous to those who have needs. And so they gathered the resources and sent it by the hands of Saul and Barnabas. And they made their way south to Jerusalem. As they're making their way south, a guy by the name of Herod Antipas was unleashing terrible persecution on the church in Jerusalem. In fact, we saw the second martyr in the book of Acts last week. James, the apostle, is beheaded. Brother of John, son of Zebedee. Is, is gruesomely executed publicly. And Peter is then taken into prison and he's held until after Passover so that he also can be publicly executed. But we got to see last week the powerful hand of God delivering him from prison, delivering him between two soldiers. And, and he is awakened. The angel literally had to kick him awake because he just was so sound asleep in God's sovereignty, just resting, knowing that God is good. And we had to wrestle that out because God... Let, let one apostle be beheaded, and he delivered another apostle, and we have to wrestle that. Like, why does God sovereignly allow certain things to happen in our life, or why does he deliver some people and not others? That's all wrapped up in his sovereign will. We saw the angel deliver Peter, and he went to a house church, and he proclaimed how he had been set free. And they, it took him a while, actually, to get in the door, if you all remember. He was knocking at the door for a while. And then we got to enjoy one of my favorite points from last week is that every Herod has his day. And so we got to see Herod get eaten by worms. Any, any enjoy that last week? Yeah, we got to love when Herod gets eaten by worms. What a great passage of Scripture. Well, this morning, we are picking up right where we left off. And the point of this is nothing can stop the gospel. Not famine, not persecution, not martyrdom, not antagonism. In fact, as we see at the end of chapter 12, verse 24 and 25, it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Okay, it does not stop because one person dies. Okay, all of the apostles could have been executed. The gospel would still spread. It would still multiply. The gospel is more powerful than any single person. It is more powerful than any philosophical uh, persuasion or any culture. It, it, it permeates. And it's just like light. It shines and it goes out and it's salt and it flavors. And so the, the gospel increases and, and it multiplies. And we see now a massive shift in the book of Acts. 
Verse 25, it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their what? Their service, their ministry of bringing the resources to the church, and they bring with them John, whose other name was what? Okay, I want you to circle that. I want you to circle John Mark. We're going to get these little, these little notes about John Mark, and it may not seem important, uh, but I'll show you in just a few minutes why, why that is important, why Luke is doing that, why he's including these little notes about this guy by the name of John Mark. But we've, we are now turning away from Jerusalem, okay? The, the home church, the, the starting of the church was in Jerusalem, but now the focus, it's like in any movie where the focus now turns to the main characters for the rest of the story, or just like in a literary shift, now we are turning away from Jerusalem and primarily Peter to now focus on the worldwide ministry of this guy Saul, who we'll also know as Paul the Apostle. Chapter 13, verse 1, we are back at Antioch in Syria, and now we get to meet some of the church leadership that is over this very eclectic mix of Jews and Gentiles in Antioch. And I'll tell you right now, this is a great picture of who you want in leadership. Not only diversity, but you're going to have a picture of a great spiritual fervor in this early church. It says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, those who speak forth and those who teach. You have Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod, uh, and a good friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And it's, it's fascinating, this diversity that we see here in the personalities that make up the leadership of this early church. We have devout Jewish believers in Barnabas and Saul. We have a Christian from Africa, Simeon, who is called Niger, a reference to his African heritage. We have Lucius, a Christian from North Africa. And then we've got Manian, a Gentile convert who was buddies with Herod the Tetrarch, the one who beheaded John the Baptist. It's a very eclectic group of people that the gospel has reached, and it shows the cosmopolitan makeup of Antioch. And so these, these church leaders are gathered together, and I have a very important question for you, and I want, one, I want you to interact with this. What do you desire of your church leaders? What do you desire them to be focused on? Okay, God. What? Transparency. What else? Growth. What else? Teaching. What else? Salvation. How many of you want Jesus chasers in your leadership? Pretty simple. You want Jesus chasers, not just Sunday preachers. Amen? Okay? It's not a performance. It's not an act. You want people who legitimately love Jesus and who are legitimately seeking after him and his will being done. And the means by which we seek out God's will is, is unique. Unique to the organization called the church because the things that the early leaders were involved in and focused on, the postures they were taking, I believe, are very applicable today. It says in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and what? Fasting. Okay, so you can underline worshiping, fasting. You can add in there seeking. They are seeking God's will. Okay, so they're worshiping. That's not just a, a reference to singing. They were studying the scriptures. They were praying. They were singing hymns. And they were fasting. And some of us, that, that word freaks us out. We read that word, we're like, what does that mean? It, it means more than just giving up Netflix for Lent. Okay, so they were setting aside food. They were literally abstaining from food so they could focus on spiritual nutrition. Scientists today are now just discovering the physical benefits to the body as far as with fasting. Well, for millennia we have known that, that food fasting, spiritual fasting, focuses our soul and our spirit on God. We listen better 
when we're not eating food. Like Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? But the word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, there is spiritual nourishment that comes in times of fasting. And so they're, they're seeking God. And that is when the Holy Spirit speaks. Family, how does the Holy Spirit speak to you? Some of us are like, oh, I don't know. Have you ever heard God speak to you? How does he speak to you? Okay, through his word. How else? Prayer. How else? You ever have somebody walk up to you and speak a word to you that they had no idea was for you, but holy moly, you're sitting there going, how did you know that? Have you been reading my mail, my email, my Facebook? You got my messenger account? What's the deal? How'd you know that? Years ago, I was in a, a mission trip in Mexico, and a guy came up to me. He goes, look, I don't know how to tell you this. He's like, uh, and after a while, I was like, dude, you're just going to have to tell me. And he goes, I feel like God wants me to tell you that you're called to be a pastor. I was like, <laughs> joke's on me, right? Because years later, here I am. And I, and I look back on that, and I'm like, how did that guy know that? He, he didn't. The Holy Spirit did. And there's times where God is going to speak, and God is going to speak to the church, and they are going to commission people who are already called. And this is important. The church does not call you. God calls you. The church only commissions those who've already been called. And that's very important. So the Holy Spirit says this. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have wet them. I have called them. That concept of setting apart is commissioning. And we're going to see the first two fully commissioned missionaries recorded in the New Testament. And they are set apart for the work, but the work they've already been called to. In fact, I want to show you just briefly when Saul received his calling from God. I don't know if you remember in Acts chapter 9, but how did God get Saul's attention? What's that? He knocked him on his butt and struck him blind. You all remember that? See, he was all bad. He had letters from the, the church of Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, at the, the temple of Jerusalem, and he was going to go and take people from Damascus who were of the way, and he was going to have them put in prison. God rendered him blind, and he went stumbling into Damascus, humbled. To restore Saul's sight, God sent a man by the name of Ananias, a disciple. And so God talked to Ananias, and, and God was like, hey, Ananias, I need you to go pray over Saul. He's like, Saul who? Saul of Tarsus. Wait, Saul what? I'm not going to go pray over Saul of Tarsus. Here's the guy that's been persecuting the church. And God said, look, don't question me. I know every fiber of his being, every thought and meditation of his heart. I know this, Saul. I have a specific work for him to do. You need to go pray over him. And this is what God spoke to Ananias. He said, go, for he is a what? Chosen instrument. Family, you know what that means? A tool. He's a tool. That's exactly what that phrase means. He's a tool for God. And some of us have this idea in our minds of like, what does it mean to serve God? Well, here it is. When you come to, to the grips and the reality that you are simply a tool in the hand of the master craftsman, he has a purpose and a plan for each one of our lives. This isn't just for Saul of Tarsus. This is for us sitting here today, 2,000 years later. God has a plan for each one of us and a purpose, and we are all called for a specific work. He has been set aside specifically to carry my name. What name? We said it a few times during worship today. Is there any greater name? To carry the name Jesus before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, Saul is going to stand before the Gentiles. He is going to stand among the elite. He's going to stand and speak before royalty. 
He's going to deliver the message of Jesus to the children of Israel and the leaders of Israel. He has this great calling on our life, and we're like, on his life, and we look at it, and we're like, wow, it'd be great to have a huge calling. I want to say, I want to temper that. Be careful. Because those who have huge callings, and he did, he is going to stand before kings. He is going to proclaim the gospel to the then known world. He is going to pen a large chunk of the New Testament, but he is going to suffer. Every great calling comes at incredible cost. Verse 16 of chapter 9, for I will show him how much he must suffer. I like being a tool. Being a tool and an instrument of God is fantastic. I don't like this idea of suffering. But he will suffer for my namesake. And as I look at this, this concept of, of the church now commissioning Saul and Barnabas, Barnabas, they're commissioning those who have already been called by God. And they've been called to carry. But they're going to face conflict, and it's going to come at a cost. And I want that all to be in your mind as I introduce you to one more verse in this concept, because I want to show you that you yourself are a tool. There's nothing greater than being a tool for God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Just file this away. You can circle this in your notes. The Bible says that you are, we are, God's what? Workmanship. Uh, in Greek, it is poiema. Ever say poiema? That's where we get the English poetry. You are God's poetry. Some of you who think you have no value and no worth, hold on a second. You are the prose of the living God. You are his poetry. In fact, you are his workmanship, and you were created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. There is a work that God has called you to do that nobody on else on earth can do. Is that incredible? That you're his poetry, and through that poetry, he's going to have an expression of good works, which God has prepared beforehand. You don't have to manufacture the work. You don't have to make the work happen. I remember one time I was asking a pastor, I'm like, how do I get into this gig? And I meant gig as in IE ministry. And he goes, I'm sorry. Nobody can, you don't just get hired into this. He's like, it's a calling. And if God has a purpose for you in ministry, he will open the door for you. And some of you feel called to ministry. And I just want to tell you that, that you may be sitting there, you may be frustrated, and you may be kind of frictious in your spirit, but I'll tell you, he will open a door for you if that is your calling. If that is the work that he's prepared beforehand for you to do, you will do. We will walk in his plans. And you know what? We should. There's a work that we've all been called to do. So you can go ahead and hashtag, I'm a tool, uh, on your Facebook um, back to Acts chapter 13, because it says again, uh, verse 3, then after fasting, so they were fasting, they hear from God, they continue fasting and praying, then they lay their hands on them and send them off. What, what does that mean to lay hands on somebody? To pray over them, right? It's a picture of commissioning. Uh, we've done that as a church. We've prayed over elders. We've prayed over pastors who have been set out. It's, it's a form in a picture of placing a mantle of, of ministry, and then they sent them out to where? <laughs> to the world. I mean, they're literally like praying for them, and they're like, go get them. And they've got a couple bucks in their pocket, maybe they got a loaf of bread, and they're like heading off into the unknown. Doesn't that sound fun? Can you imagine risking it like that for Jesus? Could you imagine just going, just like taking a backpack and going, I have no idea where I'm going. I have no idea where I'm going to be sent. I have no idea who I'm going to talk to, but I'm going to take the name of Jesus to wherever he tells me to go and whoever he tells me to speak it to. Doesn't that sound fun? Some of you are like, that sounds awful. <laughs> Not much of a 401k in that, is there? 
I mean, this is chasing Jesus stuff. So verse 4, they head out. They, they head down to Seleucia. I'm going to give you a map. Everybody loves maps. I've heard some complaints about my maps recently, so you know what I did? We went and had one created specifically for you. This map exists nowhere else on earth. This is the, You were the only ones that get this map. You all feel blessed? Here's your map, Firewheel. You all like that? Can you all read that? Okay, so I'm going to give you just kind of a brief geography lesson. Down here you've got Jerusalem, the area of Palestine, up north Syria. Up to the top here is Turkey. So when you go home, you can look at a map and you can, you can locate Turkey. Interestingly enough, the gospel is going to flow first to Turkey as it, the then known world. And then we see Antioch up here of Syria. That is the, the home planting church of Saul and Barnabas. They are being sent out. And so they travel down to the port city of Seleucia. And then they sail over to Salamis or you can call it Salamis. You all see that? Y'all see the city of Salami? Okay, and then they're going to go across the island of Cyprus, and they're going to end up in the port city of Paphos, and they're going to head up to, to Perga and the land of Pamphylia, the area region, and they're going to head to another Antioch. It's not the same Antioch. It's the Antioch of, of Pergamum, but it is another city by the name of Antioch. Stay with me. Verse 4. It says in the text, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. I, I feel like I need you to know something. I don't know if you've ever questioned or wondered why did Jesus come when he came? And what was going on in history that made the gospel so effective? Because it spread and it saturated very, very quickly. We need to understand that this was really not only the perfect convergence of sovereign will and earthly history, but there was a lot going on culturally that allowed the gospel to spread. The, the first thing that was going on, the Greeks and the Romans were master road builders. They were the first to create master infrastructure. We're talking like super highways of the day. And it wasn't just across lands connecting to the then known world. It was across the coast. They had an intercoastal highway that will rival some of the most advanced of today. And so the, there was ease of travel. They could go north, south, east, and west across these trade routes and travel routes very easily by ship and by foot. There was also a very common language of the day. Everybody had their native tongue, but predominantly everybody spoke Koine Greek. So they didn't need a translator where they went. They had an ease of travel. They didn't need a translator, a common language, and something else that was going on culturally. Unbelievable spiritual hunger. Everywhere the apostles went, everywhere the disciples went and the missionaries went, they encountered first a synagogue. That's a place of Jewish learning and teaching. They would encounter temples and places of worship to pagan gods. There was an unbelievable hunger and thirst to worship something. In fact, as a Roman culture, they would worship the emperor. They would worship goddesses and gods. They were hungry spiritually. And so you had all this ease of travel. You have a common language. You have a spiritually hungry people. And that is why the gospel took root so quickly and saturated cultures. So verse 4, they set sail from Seleucia, and they sail over to the island of Cyprus. You can do this trip today, by the way, which is very cool. This is the first missionary trip of Saul. Does anybody out there know how many missionary trips we're going to take? Total. Three. We're going to witness three different missionary trips, each lasting two to four years. So the first of the missionary trips. Sails to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salami, they proclaimed the word of... I don't know why I think that's funny. I just do. Um, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Circle that. They had John to assist them. 
This is all going to make sense here when I keep, I, why I keep talking about John. So this kind of creates the model. They would show up in a city, they get to Salamis, and they, they preach first in the synagogue. Now the synagogue would be made up of, of devout Jewish believers, but also God-fearers. Gentiles who were seeking the God of Israel. So this kind of creates the model of preaching. They would start with the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That is the model of the gospel. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation of man to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so they begin in the synagogue. We have no idea how that particular, how that particular preaching circuit went down. They were in Salamis for a while. They make their way across the island of Cyprus and a preaching circuit, and they make their way to the most important port city and the island of Cyprus. And in fact, it is the resident, uh, residence of the uh, governor of Cyprus, a guy by the name of Sergius Paulus, who we'll meet momentarily. So he ends up traveling to the city of Paphos, Here's a thought, though. How many of you have faced conflict when you feel like you're doing what God's calling you to do? You face opposition. You ever faced opposition? Like, you know, like, God has called you. You have, like, this clear calling. You've got this commissioning, and you're going, and then there's conflict. And you have this thought, well, well maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm not called. And I'll tell you right now that conflict doesn't negate the calling. Sometimes it confirms it, that you are going to face conflict in this life. And you're going to have bar Jesuses in your life. A guy who claims to be the son of Jesus, he's actually the son of the devil, verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, we, we don't get a day-by-day -day telling of what happened. If we did, the book of Acts would be like a library. But we get these highlights. So they get to Paphos. They came upon a certain magician. And then think of this contradiction. A Jewish false prophet named bar Jesus. The guy's name means son of, bar being son of. Jesus, uh, very much son of the devil, he's a charlatan, a soothsayer, an astrologist, and a fortune teller. In fact, one Greek lexicon uh, translates the, the, the statement prophet or false prophet as a bogus prophet. Family, this world is full of bogus prophets. And guess what they're in it for? Profit. Cash money. He had the ear of the governor a guy by the name of Sergius Paulus, who we meet in verse 7. Uh, it says, he was with the proconsul. That is, Bar-Jesus was with the governor. So he had the ear of this high-ranking Roman official. And this guy is described as a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So you've got this Roman official, Roman governor, who hears that these two guys are proclaiming a message from God, and he says, I want to hear that. There are times when people are going to discover that you are a believer, and they want to know the message of the hope that you have. And they are going to call you. My question is, what are you going to say when you get there? I don't know. We'll talk about that in a minute. So they get into his presence and they begin to proclaim the word of God. Verse 8, it says, but Elymas, the magician, that's another way of rendering his name, for that's the meaning of his name, Bar-Jesus, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And I can imagine, he's sitting there watching his, his prophets start to decrease, and he's, he's losing leverage over the pro-council and with the governor, and so he's fighting and antagonizing the message as Saul and Barnabas are speaking. Question for you, when someone's in opposition to you, what's your natural desire when someone opposes you? The what? Fight. Wouldn't it be great to just be like, shut up? 
Paul is going to say something. He's going to respond a certain way, and I'm like, it'd be really cool if we could operate this way. <laughs> this probably won't work out. Um, and we got to temper it. But anyway, listen, listen to how Paul uh, responds. Oh, by the way, we're going to call him Paul from here on out, starting at verse 9. Some of you have been taught, now just out of curiosity, a show of hands, how many of you have, how many of you been taught that Saul's name was changed to Paul when he became a believer? Okay, that's fake news. There's all kinds of weird teaching that I hear. I remember one time when I, when I was real early in the Lord, somebody came up to me and goes, hey, do you know that guys have one less rib than women? You heard that too. Is, you're in the medical profession, is that true? Is that fake news also? Dang it. So Saul's name was not changed to Paul. In fact, his name was Saulus Paulus. Saul to the Hebrew, Paul to the Greeks and to the Gentiles. But interestingly, in verse 9, this is when he, we see him change his name and focus specifically on the Gentiles. Verse 9, but Saul, who was also called what? You see nothing about him having his name changed by Jesus? You all see that? Okay, good. Filled with the Holy Spirit. See, I think this is important because when we face opposition, my tendency is to be filled with my flesh and to be filled with self-defense mechanisms and, and anger. But Paul isn't. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He looked at him intently and he said, you son of the devil. Can you imagine trying that out in your office when someone's opposing you? <laughs> you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Not a great word, villainy. Uh, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Could you imagine if you could strike your opposition blind? Someone's like opposing you in a grocery store. You're like, bam, blind. I'm checking out first. Or you're getting on a highway, someone's opposing your ability to merge. You're like, bam! Well, you wouldn't do that because they're driving. Because that would not be safe. <laughs> but the key is he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the point is, it's not that this man was opposing Paul. Sometimes we get so defensive because people are opposing us. We need to quit being so self-defensive. The Lord says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. The issue was, this bar Jesus was stammering and fighting against Jesus. See, Paul himself had been struck blind because he was opposing Jesus. He just speaks the same judgment over this guy, Bar-Jesus, that Paul himself had received. And I believe it was in hopes that Bar-Jesus would repent of his sin. He is struck blind at that moment, and he immediately starts groping for people to help him and, and walk out of there. This, this great Bar-Jesus is proven to be a bogus prophet preaching with no power. Then Paul is declaring a message with power. And guess what happens to the proconsul? Verse 12. It says in the text, the proconsul, what's that word? There is no greater word in this whole paragraph. He believed. Isn't that incredible? As, as Saul and Barnabas were set out from Antioch, they had no idea who they were going to encounter. They have just shared the gospel with the high governor of the entire island of Cyprus, and he believes. And some will say that then he began to share the gospel with the entire island. Isn't that amazing? He believed when he saw what had occurred. He saw the gospel preached in power. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord, and he gave his life to Christ. We have no idea how long they hung out at Paphos after that, because the text immediately says they set sail. Okay, so they hop on the intercoastal highway. One more time, the map. 
And so they're going to sail from Paphos, and they're going to go up to Perga. Something interesting is going to happen at Perga. I kept telling you to, to make mention or focus on this guy by the name of John Mark. Something's going to happen at Perga, and it's going to shape the mission itself. In fact, it's going to create great conflict for the mission. And then they're going to go head up to Antioch. I want you to look at verse 13. Because this is the second crisis. The first one was Bar-Jesus. The second one is this guy, John Mark. Now, when Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. It's such a small note. One that we would typically just skip over as we're reading the Bible. But what we don't realize is the narrative, the sub-narrative, the, the minor narrative here, is he abandons the work. He quits. He was serving, he was a part of the mission, and then he abandons it, and he bails. Some have offered maybe he was homesick. Maybe it was the conflict. I'll say it's probably a lack of maturity. And it's really easy to look at a guy like John Mark and go like, I can't believe he bailed. I can't believe he quit. What a quitter. What a failure. I'm going to say there's a, a little bit of John Mark in all of us. You see, there's moments where we're like John Mark where we quit something or we, we, we step down or we, we pull away or conflict pushes us back or we fail. All that is is a testimony is we've got maturing to do. John Mark is going to do great ministry. He's the nephew of Barnabas. In the future, he's going to be a great missionary. In fact, in your Bible right now, you have the gospel called Mark. Who do you think wrote that? The abandoner of the mission, John Mark. He's going to do great things but he had to be matured first, and this is part of his maturing. But this one event is what is going to separate Paul and Barnabas come Acts chapter 15. It's going to create great conflict, so hold on to that. I just need you to remember, though, sometimes people are going to fail. Don't write them off. Sometimes you're going to fail. Don't write yourself off. God still has work for us to do. So they go on from Perga, and they came to Antioch, verse 14, uh, by the way, this is not the same Antioch as the Antioch of Syria. This is now Antioch of Pergamum. And this particular Antioch uh, is, is a pretty important city, not as important as the Antioch of Syria, but it's a very common name. Uh, all these cities were named after a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphany, a great Greek king. So in honor of him, there were a lot of cities named Antioch. So they get to Antioch. Guess where they go first on Saturday? Why do you think they go to the synagogue? They have a message to proclaim. And they go to the Jew first. And I love that just so happens in the Bible because it just so happens that as they arrive at the city of Antioch, as they enter into this place of Bible study, a place of worship and prayer, it just so happens on this particular Saturday, there's going to be a reading from the scripture, and then the, the ruler of that particular synagogue is going to seek out someone to bring a message. Guess who they're going to ask to bring the message? Paul and Barnabas. And they're going give, to be given the opportunity to stand before hundreds of people, Jewish and God-fearers, Gentile seekers, and they're going to be able to declare a message. And just out of curiosity, if you were given a platform, and all of a sudden somebody said, hey, look, this whole party wants to hear a message from you. Our whole office believes that you have a message for us, and you're given this platform to speak, what would you say? Look at the text, verse 15. 
It says, after reading from the law and the prophets, that is from the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, and from the, the books of history or the prophets, they would read excerpts of scriptures. The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement, if you have any message at all, say it. So Paul stands up, verse 16. He motions with his hands. Says, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And this is exactly where we're going to pick up next week. He has a message to declare. We get three full recorded sermons. Well, a couple extras, but mainly three sermons in the book of Acts. We see a full sermon preached by Peter in Acts 2. We see a full sermon preached by Stephen in Acts 7. And we are now going to hear an entire sermon preached by Paul in Acts 13. I want to tell you that these are important. We need to read, we need to study these sermons and break it down to its essential parts because there's going to be a day, and I guarantee it's going to happen to you. You as a Jesus chaser, there's going to be a day where God's going to give you a platform and you're going to be given the opportunity to speak and we need to know what to say, don't we? And so our goal next week, we're going to answer the question, what do we say? when we're given platform by God to declare a message. But before we get there, a few applications. Uh, first, uh, just right from the scriptures, man, like what does it mean to listen for God to speak? I love that picture of the church at Antioch. They're worshiping, they're praying. What else were they doing? Fasting from what? We're like, uh, food? That sounds awful. Well, they were listening. I'm not going to tell you that God cannot break into the ruckus and cacophony of our life and speak to us. At times, he's ever so rude, and he does break into time and space and mess up our whole enchilada. I'm not going to say he won't do that. Enchiladas sound really good, don't they? Um, now I'm thinking of like salsa verde. Anyway, um, <laughs> chips sound really tasty. So God will mess up our whole order. Um, if we desire to hear God speak, like his disciples, you want to hear like his will for your life. You want to be led by him. People will say God speaks in a still small voice. That's kind of, it's pretty true actually. I mean, I've had God yell at me. <laughs> it's just awkward. Um, it was good. I needed it. But typically when he speaks, it's when I approach him on his terms and not mine. God's never in a hurry, so when we put him under a time limit and we try to hurry him up, by the way, he's not going to condescend to that. We need to be patient and listen. Read his word, times of prayer, times of fasting, especially before big decisions. I'm astounded by how many big decisions I make before even seeking God. Major life decisions. Before you make any decision at all, Cheerios or wheat bran, I mean, man, it's say, Lord, give me your will for this day. I'm listening. Speak. Secondly, and so I want to encourage us all to listen more intently to hear God speak. He is speaking. Secondly, we all have a calling on our life. That's very much linked to listening. Uh, in fact, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, that is, laying your life down, holy and acceptable God. This is your act of spiritual worship. Then you will test and approve what God's will is. Like once we lay our life down, 
then he testifies like, here's the purpose for your life. And we all have a calling. And my prayer is here at Firewall that you, you would receive that commissioning too to undertake that calling as a champion. But I want you to remember that there's always going to be conflict and there's definitely going to be a cost. It costs us something. You don't lay your life down as a living sacrifice and it costs you nothing. But the cost is worth it. And so I just want to encourage you with that, that you are God's poetry. You have a purpose for why you are on earth. You have specific gifts and talents. You have a unique fingerprint of calling on your life. I'm encouraging you to seek after it, to undertake it, because there are good works that God has created before you even existed for you to walk in them. Good works for the kingdom. And then finally, <laughs> my favorite of all, I could have said there's a little bit of bar Jesus in all of us, but I've choose John Mark. There are times where we fail. And there's times where we fire off those emails and those text messages and we're frustrated and we're frictious and bad things happen and we're upset. And, and you know what? All that is a reflection of, we just got some growing up to do. We all got growing up to do. We don't go from success to success in ministry and in our life as Christians. We often go from failure to failure. And that's okay. In fact, I want to encourage you in this that Peter himself what did Peter, how did Peter fail? Do you all remember anything that Peter did that he failed at? you all think of anything? What? <laughs> okay, he told the Gentiles and he'd be, see, that's a very biblical stout answer. How about this? What did he do at Passover? He denied Jesus once, twice, three times. You're out, man. You denied Jesus three times, you were struck out. No. He had to become the failure of Passover so he could become the great preacher of Pentecost. And yes, he still had grown up to do. How about Paul? What did Paul do? Oh, he murdered Christians. I mean, that's it, right? Just killed them and carried them off into prison. Well, he had to be humbled on his road to Damascus. Great persecutor of the church before he became the great proclaimer of Jesus. John Mark had to fail. Yes, he failed multiple times. But then he became the great missionary. And so family, there is a John Mark in us. It's a reminder that we have maturing to do and growth, but that does not negate the calling of God in your life. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your wonderful word. We thank you that it has its perfect work in us. I believe, Holy Spirit, you had a word for each one of us today. Whatever that word is, I pray that it is received. I pray it is like fertile seed that it's planted in the soil of our hearts that it produces great fruit, encouragement. If you are here today, I pray that you, you're uh, hearing this message. If you're here, you do not have a, a relationship with Jesus. Listen, just as Sergius Paulus needed to hear, you need to hear. The Bible says that every single man, woman, and child on earth is guilty of sin. We all have it. And the wages of it is death. The Father sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. He was buried and he has risen from the dead and he is alive right now. And the Bible proclaims that all who believe in Jesus will be saved. Sergius Paulus placed his faith in Jesus and was saved. And so my, my question for you is, have you trusted in Jesus for the salvation of your soul? The answer to that question is no. And you desire to receive Jesus in the quietness of your heart. Tell him, I believe. Jesus, I believe, I testify that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I believe that you died for me, you were buried and you've risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. 
And the Bible declares if that is your heart's prayer, you've just passed from death to life, from blindness to sight. You are now filled with the Holy Spirit, and you are son and daughter of God forever to be held in his hand of love for eternity. Welcome to the family. Lord, we love you. We want to be a, a devout Jesus chaser. Stir our hearts to that theme. In your name we pray. Amen. All right.